You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless! Meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been, will be again. What has been done, will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them.
Well, they just sang Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Welcome to our summer series. We're in a series on the wisdom literature books. We have looked at the book of Job, Pastor Keith and Pastor Dennis. Fabulous job in July on the book of Job. For the month of August, I'm going to be teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible or you have a Bible app, turn to chapter 1 of the book of Ecclesiastes. He starts out with some compelling words. But things we don't like to talk about or think about. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now what's interesting, in Ecclesiastes, it's likely not one of your top five, top ten, or top twenty books in the Bible. uh, Because it's a frustrating book. It's frustrating for two reasons. One, it's frustrating because it talks about stuff we don't like to think about. And it's frustrating because it's big on questions, low on answers. And that's because it's a book that was never written to give you answers. It's a book that's written for, to provoke you to find answers. So what happens is we don't know who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. His name is never mentioned. Most people think it's King Solomon because of the story he tells of himself kind of parallels with Solomon's life. But what we do know is he is called Koaleth in the Bible. Now, Koaleth is the Hebrew word. Depending on the English translation you read, it might read a little different. If you read the authorized version or the King James version, the Old English, Koaleth is translated preacher. Now, it's probably not the best word to describe the writer of Ecclesiastes because a preacher is supposed to bring you some answers. And if he's supposed to provide answers, he's not a very good preacher. The more modern English versions of your Bible will call Koaleth, they'll call him teacher. Now, this is probably, again, a little incomplete because he's a teacher only in so much as he asks you lots of questions that provoke you to go and find good answers. A better way of seeing him is he's a philosopher. Now, how many people love philosophy? Take a good look around. There's about eight of us in the room. You know, I I laugh because in every gathering it's the same way. Now, what's interesting is whenever I ask how many people love math, it's almost the same ratio. It is almost the same ratio. Listen, the interesting thing about the writer in Ecclesiastes, and to understand even the book of Ecclesiastes, is to remember that it's a book of questions, not a book of answers. And the best way, I wish, wish we could do this, I wish we could take Ecclesiastes out of the Bible and move it to the very first book in the Bible. Because it provokes you to ask questions that the rest of the Bible answers. It pushes you to corners where you're a little uncomfortable at times. In fact, this has been said of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think it's true, that the philosopher in the book of Ecclesiastes pushes us to places where most of us don't have the spiritual or intellectual guts to go. So turn to someone next to you and say, I have the guts. Go ahead. I have the guts to go where the philosopher is going to take us. So he starts in week one, he starts with talking about the meaning of life. He poses it this way in verse three. He says, what do people gain, important word in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? He's seen this. Listen, when it's all said and done, what are you going to have to show for your life? How is your life significant? 
How is there meaning in this life? Tell me why your life is meaningful. Why does it even matter? Now, he uses that word gain, and it's used nine times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And the Hebrew word that used translate for gain means leftover or profit. So he's, he's pushing you. He's saying, what profit is there? What, what's left over at the end of your life? I mean, you work hard. You may raise kids. Uh, they leave you uh, prayerfully. And then, 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 then the, wh- where's it all end? You know, what do you actually get out of this? And he uses this phrase that he uses in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used 29 times under the sun. Under the sun. 29 times. You know how many times it's used in the rest of the Bible? Like nil. It's only found in the philosopher's book. And the term comes from an ancient term. Here's what it mean, meant. Under the sun meant everything in the natural world. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, listen, if you think this is all there is to life, the life you're living right now, if it's under the sun, it's in the natural order. Above the sun in ancient culture would have been where God, the heavens, eternity is. That's above the sun. And so he's reflecting and he's challenging those of us who might say, this is all there is to life. It's life under the sun. And what does that mean? And he will push you to say, it means nothing, no gain, no profit, meaningless. He, he ends chapter one and he's reflecting on his own life. And this is why we often think it's, it's actually Solomon who's writing this book because he's talking about all of his accomplishments and he's basically pushing us and he's saying this, listen, for those of you, when, the more you experience of life, the more you accomplish in life, the more you know about life, the more nauseated you get. The more knowledge, the more grief, he says. The more grief there is. He says, the more I accomplished or experienced, the more sick I got about it in my heart. And he's talking about that life ache that every human being feels at some point in time. That life ache. And the only way to avoid it is to stay busy. To stay distracted. To do everything you need to do to not think. The only way you avoid it is don't look at the big picture. Just keep taking selfies. Keep things on the micro level. Keep things in those moments where you just find joy and you don't think about the big picture. The philosopher is saying the people who have this life ache are people who think about life. People who reflect on their lives. People who have big questions in this life. And the philosopher says, if you're busy and you'll work hard and you, when it's all said and done, will you have anything to show for it? Now, what is he doing in chapter one? He's pushing you. And this is why people don't like Ecclesiastes, because he's pushy. He's pushing you to ask important questions that you likely on your own won't want to answer. It'd be kind of like this. After this gathering, imagine a friend of yours comes up to you and says, listen, tomorrow between 3 and 5 p.m., go, I want you to stand on the corner of Young and Finch for two hours. What would you say to your friend? Why? And your friend says, well, it doesn't matter why. I just want you to stand there between 3 and 5, 5 p.m. And you'd say, again, why? Like, like, I know you're my friend, but I need to know there's a purpose for this. There's a reason why I'm standing there between 3 and 5 p.m. 
And the philosopher is pushing me, saying, exactly. You care so much about wasting two hours of your life that you ask why. Why aren't you asking why about your entire life? Where you're spending it and where it's headed. And he pushes us to ask this question because it's natural to ask why. And he anticipates what our stock answers are going to be in chapter 1. When we say, what is the meaning of a life? So let's turn this place into a classroom right now because he's the philosopher, he's the teacher, and he asks the class, what is the meaning of life? And in the front row, some early 20-something-year-old or late teen puts his hand up because that person is a humanist. And this is a philosophy by which many people live their lives. And basically, a humanist says this, I'm here to make the world a better place. In our young adult years, this is a philosophy we often fuel our lives with. I mean, how many of you, you remember a stage in life or you're presently there where you just feel like, you know, if somebody asks you what the meaning of life is, well, I'm here to make the world a better place. How many of you, you guys are not very nice. Like, I hope you want to make the world a better place. Well, the humanist jumps up to the philosopher and says, I'm here to make the world a better place to live in. I hope that at the end of my life, as I look out in this world, I've made the world a better place to live in. This is the philosophy I often hear at funerals. When people are talking about their loved ones. And they'll say, well, he or she, they made the world a better place to live in. Now, what are they saying when they say that? They want to say, they're saying, they didn't live their life in vain. They didn't live their life in vain. And the interesting thing is the philosopher would push back. The philosopher would question that line of thinking. The philosopher would say in verse 11, he'd basically say how insignificant your life actually is. Because he would say this of, I'm just here to make the world a better place. He'd say, listen, if you're living under the sun, what difference can you make? And he pushes you in this chapter. And did you pick it up when Milton, one of the guys from our church on that video, read from first, or Ecclesiastes chapter 1? He pushes you by showing you how incredibly insignificant you really are. He does it in light of human history. He says this, No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Now, how many... I find this verse so offensive in many ways because we're in a church that's multi-generational and I feel like we stand on the shoulders of everyone who's come before us. We have people who have contributed for years here. They have served. They are given. They're faithful to it. What do you mean they'll be forgotten? I have a good friend. His name is Bill Morrow and he's on our church staff. Bill is in his 70s. He has been the president of our Bible college. He's been the general superintendent of the movement we're a part of. So we're a part of over a thousand churches in Canada. He led them all. Earlier in his ministry years when he was the general superintendent, we have an international office for our movement in Mississauga. He built this incredible building. He took us out of debt, pretty incredible leader, and he was able to build this facility that helps ministry right around the world in Mississauga. So he told me this story. He said, this happened three years ago. He went to the international office, the office he built. He went there for a meeting. He walked in, and the receptionist said, hello, can I help you? And he said, I'm here for an appointment. He said, what's your name, sir? Bill Morrow. Well, have a seat, Mr. Morrow. 
And he smiled. He said, he said, you know, he said, I'm thinking on the inside, I built this place. <laughs> a few short years ago, everybody knew my name. Everyone knew I was. And he smiled at me. He said, Jonathan, never forget this because that'll be your life too. And he smiled and he said, and it's just the way it should be. See, before we get all offended at this notion, let's get real personal here. How many of you know much about your great-great-great-grandfather? Not your, not your grandfather, not your great-grandfather, your great-great-great-grandfather. Do you know his name? No. You know his story? You might know he came from somewhere or did something. No. And you're related to him. He's your flesh and blood. You know, here's the deal. The writer of Ecclesiastes is pushing out a truth we don't like to acknowledge. 40 years from now, nobody remembers us. Oh, you make a million dollar donation to a charity, they'll put a plaque up. But 400 years from now, nah. Now, what about... What if you rule the world, or, or you were Steve Jobs, or you did this big thing, and you know what, 4,000 years from now? Footnote at best. At best, a footnote in history, at best. This is what he's pushing at. He's trying to say uh, to the humanists, listen, you want to make this world a better place. Good for you, but that's nonsense. If you are living under the sun, if you're finding meaning in this natural life, it's not enough. You're not significant enough. You can't change the world enough. He's a little depressing. But, you know, the humanist, ever the optimist, puts his hand up again. He said, listen, I know the real question we should be asking. We should be asking, how do we get governments to work together so that all of a sudden, all of the damage we've done to the environment and our natural world can be put back in order so that someday this world doesn't inevitably become a place that's uninhabitable? How do we do that? How, do we, how can we get them to work together? How do you think the philosopher responds to that challenge? Well, he'd say, are you kidding? Are you kidding? You're going to hold back the inevitable? That our civilization is doomed as we know it? And you think by our bad habits somehow accelerating that, that that makes anything better? It likens it to this idea. Imagine we're on a cruise ship right now. You like that? And it's sinking. <laughs> Not so much now. But the captain runs into this room right now and he says, hey, the boiler is about to explode. We're going to sink two minutes faster. What do you go? What a tragedy? No, you say, potato, potato. <laughs> two minutes faster. Either way, we're going down. And he's trying to push them to a point where he's saying, listen, you, all the good things you do inevitably come undone. Why are you even trying to do it? The real question is whether there is just life under the sun. Is that all there is to life? Is there no God? Is there no creation? Is there no eternity? If there is, then you're wasting your time. If there isn't a God or a creator or an afterlife, you're wasting your time. What difference is it if you're compassionate or humanitarian or racist or sexist? What difference does it really make? Because he would say in this opening chapter, futility Futility. All is futile under the sun. Now, I just want to make the world a better place. Give me a break. 
Give me a break, he would say. If life under the sun is all there is, if there's no God who created you, if there's no eternity, if there's no afterlife, there's no way you can make a dent. Your life is like a footprint on the shore when the water comes in. And once you lift your foot up, your footprint's gone. Insignificant. Now, so somebody in the back of the class agrees with the philosopher and puts up his hand because this person, she's a hedonist. Can you say that with me? Hedonist. She's a hedonist. And here's what she says. She basically said, listen, I can't make the world a better place. I agree with you, philosopher. You can't make the world a better place. So I might as well find pleasure in life and work. You know, eat, drink, and marry. be merry because tomorrow we die. Listen, I can't change the world, so let's just enjoy. And just enjoy the moment. Now, if, if humanism really appeals to those young adult idyllic ages, this is the middle age right here. Why? Because you've been around long enough. You've been around long enough to see some presidents come and go, and prime ministers come and go, and shockingly, the world seems similar. You've been around long enough to work hard and give and do this and not see the change you thought you'd see. You've worked out hard enough and not seen the change you wish you'd seen. <laughs> so all of a sudden you lean in and you say, well, listen, I'm going to just enjoy my life. I'm going to enjoy my life. You know what? Let's have a child. <laughs> uh, let's go for a boat ride. Boat ride's cheaper, by the way. Uh, let, let's, 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 let's enjoy productivity. If you're that type of person that feels that a cathartic feeling, that dopamine hit every time you cross something off your to-do list and it feels great. I'm going to enjoy being productive. I'm going to create beautiful things in this life. I'm going to love people. I'm going to enjoy my family in life. I'm going to enjoy life. And the philosopher says, I've been there, done it, and tried it, and bought the t-shirt, and it doesn't work. Here's how he says it, actually. He says it this way. All things are wearisome. The things you like doing right now, you do it enough, it becomes wearisome. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. In verses 12 to 16, he kind of lays out his pedigree. He says, I've been the king of Israel. I've been the king of Jerusalem. I've accomplished great things. I've seen it all. I've denied myself no pleasure in this life, and it all is chasing after the wind if it's under the sun. It's just all been chasing after the wind. The famed uh, scholar from Oxford, C.S. Lewis, he responds to hedonists, this hedonist approach that, listen, I might as well just enjoy every day. And he says this, the only way you can enjoy life then is doing your best not to think. It's like putting your head in the sand like an ostrich while a wolf prowls around you to live the lie that he is somehow safe. The only way we can enjoy a relationship, enjoy music, enjoy food then, is I have, to not, I have to work hard not to think about reality. So he's saying this, basically. How can you hug a child and have joy in it when you know it's going to end? How can you love a spouse when you know it will end? See, it's never been easier to be a hedonist than it is right now in our culture. Why? Because you've never had more things available to you to distract you from the big picture, to distract you from the better questions in life. Do you know on average 
how many times a person looks at a phone in North America right now? This is just the average, just the average per day. Take a guess. I can't hear one of you. <laughs> the average in North America is 85 times a day. 85 times a day. That's just average. That's not, that's not a high user. That's an average user looks at their phone 85 times a day. Simon Sinek, and he's one of the speakers at the Global Leadership Summit, which I'm so pumped about this week, I can't wait for it. He talks to millennials, a great lecture to millennials, and I thought it was fascinating. And he pulled out a phone, he was talking about how this is changing the way people think and work and do life. Not because of just even the ease and the advances of it, but because of the addictions that are being formed. Because every time you get a text message, and it's been measured, it's interesting, there's a dopamine hit. And a dopamine hit is like a flood of hormones that makes you feel good. And that's why some people, when they're lonely, they just start texting as many people as possible, hoping somebody gets back to them. It's why we love the likes we get on Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram. It's why we love those things, because they make us feel good. And we live in an Instagram-filtered world where we put forth a version of ourselves that we know doesn't exist. You know that, friends. You know that, that profile pic, that's not you. That's you on your very best moment. You know, we, we frame our lives and we Instagram the things that make it exciting, but it's not normal life. And we can't possibly live up to it. Interesting, he said this in, the, in his lecture. He said, you can always tell when someone puts in, at the dinner table or they're meeting with you and they put their phone on the table, you can tell they have an addiction. So as he said that, I just moved my phone off the table and into my pocket. And he said, you know, when somebody gets a phone call or a text and they look at it, but they're in conversation with you, and they somehow say, oh, I, I'm not going to take it now. Oh, thank you. Thank you. There's a problem of distraction in this world. And here's the issue. Here's where it drives us. We are conditioned not to consider what's important, but what's immediate. We are not, and this is the beautiful thing about Ecclesiastes, the beautiful thing about the philosopher. He wants you to think about what's important, not immediate. The world will always want you to think about what's immediate, not important. That's why sometimes, friends, we get discouraged with God because we don't see immediate action that we want to respond to. All of a sudden, we put God in this realm of social media where we need an immediate response as if he was your lackey. As if he was the one who jumps when you say jump. We've framed it differently, and it's damaging us right now. Here's what C.S. Lewis would say. Here's what the philosopher would say. Listen, you can find pleasure in being a hedonist for a moment, but inevitably, you can't avoid the questions. As we age, we look over our shoulders, and you can't avoid the question, what was the meaning of life? As you get sick or, or you have a loss in your life, you can't help but ask why. And the philosopher is saying this, and he's driving you to this, that hedonism is not a bad, it's a, it's a good try, and you can try it, and it can be good for a season if you really, 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 really try hard not to think, then you're okay. So he says to the humanist who wants to make the world a better place, oh, that's silly. And he says to the, the hedonist who says, well, I might as well enjoy my life while I have it here. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry. And he says, I've been there, done there, bought the t-shirt, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
The last group he talks about is the existentialists. And this is often some of the older generations as we age, especially those who are noble. Because what's interesting about the existentialists, and he shows, I'll show you in a minute where he shows it in chapter one. They would say this, okay, I agree with the philosopher. Life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. But you see character come out here. But I might as well do good even as the ship goes down. The ship might be going down, but I'm still going to do good. What is the meaning of life? There is no meaning in life. But the world may be senseless, but I won't be senseless. The world might be merciless, but I won't be merciless. The world might be meaningless, but I'm going to be humanitarian in the face of it. Even though the world may win, I will be noble. I will be courageous. I will be compassionate. I will be just. It's crazy, actually, logic. But it is noble. I don't know if you grew up reading Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre and... These were authors in the 1950s, post-World War II, when they looked on the world and the horrible things humans could do to each other. When they saw the Holocaust and everything, they wrote and they really framed this along with Kierkegaard and others. They framed this idea of thought and said, okay, the world is meaningless. There's no way you can deny it. But I'm going to be different than the world, even if it's crazy. The world might be cruel and senseless, but I will be crazy. I won't act like the world. So the philosopher says, yeah, I know what you mean. He said, then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom, to great knowledge, to understand the reason of life and also of madness. What does he mean by that? Madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. When he says this, he's saying, listen, I've tried to discover the reason of life. I've even been mad in that I have lived and operated differently than the world did. I didn't act like them. I didn't behave like them. I acted different. And in the end, in the end, it was all just chasing after the wind. See what the philosopher is doing is brilliant. For all of us, we all have leanings here. Whatever our age and stage of our life is, we might be a humanist, but you could be in your 70s and still be a humanist. I'm just making the world a better place. Or you could be a hedonist, usually in our middle age, but you can be a hedonist anytime where you just begin to self-consume. You stop giving, you stop sacrificing, you stop serving because you wonder what's the point in all of this? And you start giving a little bit more to you, serving you a little bit more, and it just becomes reframed. But any of us can do that at any stage. And the existentialist, I was a young adult when I bought into this theology or this philosophy because I saw such meaningless in this world and it, and it bothered me at such a level. But I had Christian roots, so I couldn't live like what I saw. I wanted to be, live a good life, but I didn't see the meaning in life. He, here's what he's doing. It's beautiful. He's pushing you into a corner. Every one of us. The writer of Ecclesiastes is pushing you into a corner where there's no middle ground. No middle ground. Either there is a God or else everything is utter futility. That's what he's pushing you towards. That conclusion, either there is a God, there is life above the sun, there is eternity, there's an ever after, there is a God, or everything in this life is futile, and he is brilliant in his arguments. And the hard thing is, friends, he's right. You can say there is no God, that we're all just accidents, a collision of molecules, and eventually all of our lives will end. So in other words, 
Our origin is insignificant and our destination is insignificant. And he is calling you out and calling me out if we believe that when we say, but you've got to work for human dignity on this earth. You've got to work for human rights on this earth. You've got to work that every human being is valuable. Come on. Come on. He would say this, basically, and people think Christians are naive. What type of faith does it t- do you have to have to believe that your origin is insignificant, your destination is insignificant, and the logical conclusion would be, and the only rational conclusion would be, your life then is insignificant. Either there is life above the sun or there is no meaning, no meaning under the sun. So, fun, eh? Here's the application. Here's how this applies to all of us in this room. Because, you know, I've watched Christians, even people of faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, this is important for you to hear because I've watched Christians live these philosophies with the thought of above the earth, above the sun, eternity in their back pocket, because someday I might need that, should I die. But in this life, they give little consideration to life above the sun. They live as if it's all about life under the sun. They live for themselves. They live with no sense of urgency at all for things that are important, only urgency for the immediate They're taxed out, they're busy, they're stretched thin by the demands of life, of which none of them all feel important, but all they are is immediate. And the important stuff, the real stuff, the stuff that lasts forever, the eternal stuff, kind of gets marginalized and put under a table somewhere. Now, he he doesn't push you to make you feel bad. He pushes you to make you think. So here, the ancient writer, the philosopher, again, you're not going to find the answer to his questions in the book of Ecclesiastes. You're meant to find them in other places in the Bible. And you find the answer to his question in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is a fascinating chapter. The Apostle John wrote it, and interesting in chapter 1, he follows a philosophical narrative. He says this in verse 1. He says this, In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Can you say that with me? In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Now, your English translation will say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he begins his treatment of the story of Jesus by calling him the Logos. Now, why Logos? What does Logos mean? Well, Greek philosophers use the word all the time. You see what John's doing here. Logos literally meant the reason for life. And Greek philosophers, if you've studied Greek philosophy, now in this room, there's only a few of us, I think, because a lot of people, maybe you read it, but you didn't like it. Most of the angst in philosophy is what is the logos? What is the reason for life? What what is this all about? What are we meant to be here for? They searched for the Logos. They had schools of philosophy trying to find the meaning of life. Now, if you came over to my place right after this gathering and we had popcorn together, you like popcorn? And you walk in and I say, man, this popcorn maker is broken. I don't like it. My popcorn is soggy. It smells. It doesn't taste right. Something's wrong with my popcorn maker. It's broken. 
And you look at what I'm doing, and you say, I can tell you what's wrong, Jonathan. That's an espresso machine, not a popcorn maker. I can tell you why you think the machine's broken, because you're not using it for its intended purpose. I can tell you why your popcorn is terrible, because you're not using it according to its logos, its reason for being. You're not using the machine according to its reason for existence. So Greek philosophers were on, and they were the major philosophical schools that informed the Romans later on. They were on this major journey to discover the reason for life. Because they thought, if we could just figure out what the Logos is, we could align our lives to the Logos, the reason for life, and all of a sudden our lives would be more meaningful and they would be less broken. But by the time Jesus came on the map, it was interesting, philosophy had changed on its head. Because after centuries of Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers in turn trying to discover the logos, the reason for life, finally they determined when Jesus came on the scene, there is no logos. They came to the place of the philosopher in Ecclesiastes, there is no meaning in life. And then the apostle John comes and he says there is a logos. And he drops the bombshell of the ages the incredible game-changing bombshell of the ages. Because he says, it's not a truth brought by a person. It's a truth that is a person. The Logos is not a philosophy. The Logos, I mean, humanism, hedonism, existentialism, whatever your philosophy may be, it's not a philosophy. The Logos is not a theory. The reason for life is not a theory. The Logos is not something you can find in a book. The Logos is God came to earth in human flesh and dwelt among us. See, what's amazing is God came from above the sun and he came under the sun. And now he brings meaning to everything. Everything changes with the Logos. If you know the Logos, if you worship the Logos, if you serve the Logos, if you orientate your life around the Logos, Instead of everything becoming futility, everything becomes utility. Everything is useful. Everything is useful. Instead of nothing meaning everything, all of a sudden now with the Logos, everything means everything. I'll show you this in a minute. All of a sudden, now that there was nothing new under the sun, now all things are new. All things are new. As a Christian, this impacts my life dramatically. And it should yours. Because I know the reason. I know the meaning. I know why spring follows winter. I know why a seed goes into the ground and it has to die and a beautiful flower comes out of it. Because it's a reflection of the ultimate reality I'm headed towards. That God is a God who brings things back to life. That's what I know. I know that when I leave this place, if I encounter someone, and in conversation, we begin to talk about God, and somehow Jesus comes up, and they make a decision to follow Jesus. I know this. I know this. Three million years from now, we will be in eternity together, around the throne of God, laughing and remembering that moment and enjoying that moment. I know it means everything. It meant nothing under the sun. It means everything now that the Logos has come. Everything. All of these things, see, right now counts forever. This is a special moment, friends. We had just this beautiful special moment in worship, but this is a special moment, because this moment counts forever. 
Everything right now means everything if Jesus is the Logos. So you have a baby. And the baby wakes up at 4 a.m. Real treat. And the baby needs to be changed. You have two ways to approach that baby. That baby is a collision of molecules whose life will end someday. And so you invest so much, but in the end, that baby will go the same way you will go. Or that baby at 4 a.m. that you're changing the diaper in is fearfully and wonderfully made and eternity is in that baby's heart. And someday, as that baby makes choices and decisions and the decision to follow Jesus, that baby will grow to be a person that three billion years from now will be around the throne with you, worshiping God, loving and laughing and enjoying eternity because of the Logos. Everything means everything. When I clean up my house, Shelley wishes was a little more frequent, but when I do it, you know what I'm doing? I'm taking chaos and putting order back in. That's what God does. Everything means everything. Even cleaning my house means something. I'm putting things back into order, just like God does. You see, when you, you see because of the Logos, everything means everything, even the ordinary. I like what John Piper said. He says, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified. You don't have to go everywhere to find that satisfaction. He is most glorified when you are most satisfied to him. If Jesus is your Logos, you've got splendor in the ordinary bits of everyday life. So, this book means a lot to me. Ecclesiastes. It might not be in your top 20, and I get it. But it's easily in my top five. Because when I was a young adult, I, I struggled and I walked away from faith. Because I had so many big questions, and to be honest with you, nobody wanted to deal with me, and I don't blame them. I was probably an arrogant know-it-all. But I had questions, and I needed answers. And I read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it blew me away. I thought, he's asking even better questions than I'm asking. And you know what it pushed me towards? I read the Gospels. And you know, I could pick apart religion. I mean, I specialized in it back in that day because I'd grown up in the church. I could see all the warts and flaws with church. I could see people who was this way on Sunday and that way. And I saw it all and I used them for reasons to discount faith and everything. But you know what bothered me is I couldn't... What do I do with Jesus, though? He enamored me. He was everything I wished I was. And I'm looking at this life of Jesus and what he taught and how he lived, and I'm thinking... I want that. Friends, not only do you want that, you were made for that. He's the Logos. He is the meaning of life. That's why we spend so much time talking about something like Alpha. Because I just know this. I have a few short years in my life. You blink, and some of you know this, you blink and your kids are grown up. If you got kids. You blink and your hair's gone. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It happened quicker than I thought it should. You, you blink and things change so quickly. And I know this. I have a season and window to help people discover the Logos. And then no more. And I know this. Three million years from now, I want a lot more people celebrating the Logos with me in eternity. 
I would love you to consider who should you be inviting to discover the meaning of life. Somebody at work, somebody at school, a child of yours, somebody who's struggled with church or God or whatever it might be. Perfect, perfect. See, the beautiful thing about the Bible, and I hope you love it as much as I do, it's not afraid of the hard questions. Religion might be, but God is not. God invites them, bring them on. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He would say this. It would be said of him that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He's your Logos. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Without him, we just still just have questions. There'd be that life ache inside of us, hoping our lives mattered, hoping that we're able to do something good. But now that he has come under the sun, now all of the good we want to do can change the world, can impact the city. Now because he came under the sun, we can enjoy things for being things. We don't have to find meaning in things. We find meaning in him. Now because he's come under the sun, we don't just have to boister our courage and just do the noble thing and despite what's going on in the world. No, we know that we are pushing back darkness with every act of kindness and love and generosity. Help us to be fanatical followers of Jesus. Not fanatical in some religious way that we become bigoted or, or superior to others, but help us as a community to be fanatically generous, fanatically compassionate, fanatically loving, fanatically kind. God, may we as a community look more like your son, Jesus. So individually, God, for those of us who are living under the sun, forgive us, God, for putting meaning in the wrong places. We look to Jesus right now, the Logos. And we say, Jesus, you are my reason. You are my meaning. And in you, I live and move and have my being. Jesus, we love you. We love you, God. We need you. We want you. And thank you for wanting us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.